This podcast may include adult content. Bound Off is an independent, nonprofit audio magazine committed to paying authors for their work. To join us in our mission of broadcasting great stories to a worldwide audience, please consider dropping us a dollar or two at boundoff.com slash donate. Support for this episode comes from the Loft Literary Center, located in Minneapolis, Minnesota, one of the nation's leading literary nonprofits, offering a wide array of online creative writing classes for all levels and genres. Online classes are offered seasonally. Find out how to register at loft.org. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories. After the Wedding by Alexander Danner and Say Yes to the Dress by Thomas Kearns. After the Wedding, written and read by Alexander Danner. Listening time, 7 minutes, 22 seconds. After the Wedding by Alexander Danner Pygmalion never sculpted again. What point would there have been? He had already created his masterpiece, his ivory love, that enchanting homunculus who shared his bed. His hands were hers now, his caresses, his passion, all hers. To continue his craft would have been ungrateful, or worse, unfaithful. And so he packed away his chisels and hammers and files into a wooden crate that he did not bother to lock the lid still half open, casually abandoned to the corner of his workshop. He covered the windows, closed the door. He went home with his wife, and he stayed there. As for Galatea, what could she know of Pygmalion's sacrifice when she herself had been the capstone to his career? She loved him, of course. Her love for him was carved into her beating heart, with the same precision as the slenderness of her fingers, the slope of her thighs, the symmetry of her nose. But it is no easy thing to be wed to one's own creator. Born and betrothed in an afternoon, Galatea spent the early months of her marriage in a fog of bewilderment. What must she expect of love? What offering was hers to make? When their first child was born, Pygmalion was amazed that perfection could be his a second time, that perfection could be born of a carnal act without measurement or exactitude or long years of lesser malformed offspring. As he held his child, he measured her with his hands and chided himself for it, then measured her again. Galatea, though, was troubled by the birth, certain that her own creation had been nothing of the sort, She was never so small, so pink. She remembered no warm, dark womb, no contortion toward freedom, no first shock of air. She remembered only his lips upon hers, and then the paralyzing compulsion to be his always. It was only natural that she would one day have to hammer, determined to understand how a lover is born. She slipped away as she could, While he napped in the garden or took wine with other men, the workshop awaited her. Pygmalion had never again taken her there, but he had made no secret of its location, its significance. The door fell open at her touch. The wooden crate, its lips still parted in anticipation, beckoned her to take up her husband's disused tools, then opened wide its maw. She worked as she imagined Pygmalion had worked, 
in a single-minded rage of creation, striving toward that improbable balance of desire and vanity that allows one to fall madly in love with a beauty of one's own deliberate devising. And what beauty did she devise? Only Pygmalion himself, over and over and over. She sculpted him not as he was, but as she had been shaped to see him, larger than himself, younger, more beautiful than even he knew he could be. And each time she felt herself crushed by her own delight in seeing his face emerge once more. It wasn't until years later that Pygmalion stumbled into the workshop, wine-drunk friends in tow, him boasting of his storied prowess, his goddess-given gift. And there he caught Galatea, belly large with a second child and chisel in hand, polishing the contours of a face utterly unrecognizable to the man who wore it. He was sickened by her secret art, by the figure's remarkable physique, by the rough stone with which she chose to work. He denounced the violence of its posture, the brutishness of its hands, the engorgement of its sex. As both husband and artist, he railed against her. She listened to his fierce pronouncements for as long as he made them. When he proclaimed that the fruits of her artistry contained no beauty, reflected no beauty, she applied her full strength to believing him. Her strength was not enough. She knew, however many times she placed chisel to stone, only one face would ever be found within. So, when finally Pygmalion had exhausted his arsenal of judgment, she cursed him once for a critic, then dashed the half-formed sculpture on the floor, resolving never to create another, and never to wander beyond the confines of her husband's arms again. She offered no apology, but Pygmalion was appeased by the destruction. Still, he burned with an unendurable question. Whose hands had shaped the child that filled her womb? Pygmalion's love for his wife faltered. Her skin became mottled, numb white patches appearing along her arms and torso, a familiar sensation, as soothing as the long, still meditations she took in the garden, alone and silent. He too sat silently, watching her from doorways and windows, unable to abandon the sight of her, yet unwilling to approach, mesmerized and repulsed in equal measure. She still loved him, could not rid herself of her love for him, etched as it was into the grain of her being. But she found solace in the loosening grip of his love for her. By the time the child was born, she had little warmth left to her, and she barely cried as the large stone was wrenched from her loins. Pygmalion threw the ugly rock to the floor in disgust, but on striking the ground it cracked open, revealing a live boy nestled inside. The boy's pink skin was no proof in Pygmalion's eyes. He heard the harsh sounding of a chisel in the child's every cry, and he could not love what was not his. Pygmalion awoke the next morning to find Galatea rigid in the bed beside him, the mewling child suckling vainly at her ivory breast. She had become unmade. He said nothing to the children of this tragedy, 
told them nothing of how they had become motherless, of how he had forfeited a woman for want of a masterpiece. For the rest of his days, Pygmalion moved her dutifully, from bed to kitchen to hearth as the hour of the day demanded, in perfect imitation of life, preserving the shadow that remained of his greatest achievement, his final creation, his only love. Alexander Danner has contributed stories to the science fiction anthologies Machine of Death and The Girl at the End of the World. He also writes comics, including the graphic novel Gingerbread Houses, illustrated by Edward J. Grug III, and the formalist series Two for No, illustrated by Timothy Godek. He teaches online courses in writing comics at Emerson College, and his second textbook about comics, Comics, A Global History, 1968 to Present, is forthcoming from Thames and Hudson in 2014. Say Yes to the Dress Written by Thomas Kearns Read by Kelly Shriver Listing time, 15 minutes, 30 seconds Say Yes to the Dress By Thomas Kearns For Stephanie T. Gretchen couldn't understand why large women were forced to be fun and outspoken. As if she needed more evidence, the third boutique her sister dragged her to was named Sassy Time. For the full-figured diva, the sign read, Maureen enthusiastically recited the tagline. In case Gretchen thought Maureen had pulled that witticism from her ass, she pointed at each word while she read. Honey, she cried, you'll love this place. Not one skinny bitch in the whole store. My leg is starting to go numb. You're worse than Brady, and he's in goddamn kindergarten. Gretchen staggered suddenly and jerked from Maureen's not-so-gentle grip on her elbow. At the last moment, she caught herself with her cane. While Maureen yammered away, Gretchen took a deep breath, focused on the present, like the therapists taught her in group. Five things I can see, four things I can feel, three things I can hear. Alas, she saw Maureen and felt Maureen and heard Maureen. No more after this, okay? The cruise isn't for another three weeks. You think I got no life? I can't chauffeur you around town at your convenience. I'm sorry, Gretchen's face flushed. Even with her bronze skin and healthy helping of freckles, it was obvious. Well, not obvious to Maureen. Gretchen felt every pound on her squat, robust frame pulling her to the pavement, its sinister gravity. She was heavy, but she'd been steadily losing weight, down below the 250-pound mark for the first time in ten years. She'd still be a big girl when she boarded the ship, but not as big as Maureen. A tight smile broke across Gretchen's face, but Maureen was too busy gawking at the display window to notice. No matter how many times she shopped at full-figure boutiques, it always shamed Gretchen to discover that, yes, even the mannequins had to be specially made to resemble women like her. She waited for her sister to notice that she was hanging back, almost blocking the entrance. Maureen squealed and clapped, insisted Gretchen take a closer look at some sleeveless fuchsia atrocity. Nothing but prayer held its bodice against the dummy. Gretchen lowered her eyes but remained rooted. She'd explained this to her sister at least a dozen times. She didn't like showing off her arms. They bothered her in a way the rest of her body did not. Maureen rolled her eyes and huffed past Gretchen into the store. You're so damn particular, girl. Gretchen followed her inside, 
hoping she'd simmer down to avoid stares. You know, I bet if most girls got to go on a week-long cruise, they'd be happy to wear potato sacks. At least, Gretchen hoped, the customers were staring at her sister and not her. Of course, it was flagrantly apparent they were sisters, and both overweight. Strangers, she assumed, would believe there was no difference between them. Gretchen didn't notice Maureen corner a homely middle-aged sales lady and demand that she take the fuchsia dress from the window. As the sales lady shuffled across the floor, Gretchen wondered how humiliating it must be to help other women look better than she, herself, might ever hope to look. Maureen assured the lumbering woman that Gretchen had literally gasped when she saw the frilly little frock. "'It's very slimming,' the sales lady said meekly. "'Maureen, no, I told you I don't like that one.' What do you know? You haven't even tried it on. And I'm not going to. Maureen rolled her eyes, crossed her arms beneath her swelling breasts. She looked at Gretchen as if she were a chore put off too long. Gretchen knew that look as well as she knew her own face. Fine, all right, Gretchen said, balancing awkwardly on her cane. I'll try on one that I want, and then the one you like. Deal? Her sister made a show of glancing all about the store at the blown-up photos of full-figured women walking on the beach, smooching little dogs, embracing children with perfect teeth. Gretchen waited patiently for her answer, quietly confident that she would acquiesce. After all, she'd managed to convince Maureen that it was her decision, not Gretchen's. Maureen broke into a wide, winning grin. The sales lady stepped back, perhaps impressed. Oh, baby girl, she said, you know I'm the only one in this family with taste. I can't wait to see you at the captain's table in that gorgeous thing. Gretchen was almost 30, but had never lived outside of her childhood home. This fact embarrassed her, like pissing in public, but whenever she revealed that the cancer she fought through high school had left her without a tailbone and bits of pelvis, she was met with dewy eyes and strokes on the arm. Compassion or pity, Gretchen wasn't sure there was much difference. She dreamed of having a job. Her fellow group members sometimes discussed their past jobs, which seemed to consist primarily of avoiding work and complaining the work you actually do is never appreciated. Maureen was irate over the attention Gretchen received. In protest, she got knocked up her senior year. To make sure her parents got the message, she refused to marry its father. She, too, had never left their parents' home, but all her bones were present and accounted for. When Gretchen was still in the wheelchair, Maureen dumped her out of it several times, demanding that she walk. It's not like anyone forgets how, she would snarl. Each time after her mother found her, Gretchen insisted she had fallen herself, while Maureen pretended to play with Brady, her son. Hold on, sister, Maureen said. We agreed you'd try on my dress first. I never said that. Well, go ahead and do it. What's it matter which one you wear first? Exactly. The sales lady handed Gretchen the black velour gown she'd spotted moments ago. It had sequined shoulders, long sleeves, and a modest slit to the knee. Gretchen thought it would help her disappear on the cruise. If you can't be beautiful, you should be invisible. Hobbling toward the dressing room, she overheard Maureen mumbling to the sales lady about playing nursemaid to a cripple. I didn't give her cancer, she said sullenly. Gretchen shut the stall door and began the laborious process of undressing. It was a blessing that Maureen helped her only when a third party was watching. As she removed her clothes, the reality of her body overwhelmed her. She still pictured herself as nine years old and full of vigor, long strawberry blonde hair trailing her. 
The chemotherapy made her bald, and what hair finally grew back was brittle and dull like pine needles. She finally finished dressing, tugging at the cuffs of her dress, forgetting no one outside gave a damn if she was happy with her appearance or not. Well, maybe the sales lady, but only because she feared Maureen. Gretchen slowly opened the stall door and stepped outside. Oh, my stars, Gretchen, you look fantastic. Gretchen had never seen this woman before. She was tall, slim, tan, blonde, and her smile seemed to generate its own light. She took Gretchen by the hand and led her away, past a row of open stalls. She would have asked who the hell this woman was, but overwhelming disorientation had consumed her the moment she stepped outside. She didn't realize she'd left her cane in the dressing room. Her gait was even and steady. Finally, when the thin sales lady stepped aside and Gretchen saw herself in a three-way mirror, she gasped. Her limbs grew rubbery and her breath caught. Ta-da, the thin sales lady called. You see, the right dress makes all the difference. Who the hell is that? What do you mean, goofball? It's you. Isn't your name Gretchen? The young woman staring back at Gretchen in the mirror was tall, slim, blonde, tan, and her teeth were as perfect as a denture. She was beautiful. She could walk straight. She belonged in this dress. And she wasn't wearing the black velour she'd selected, either. Silk, lace, strapless, provocative. This turquoise garment compelled you like an oasis. Gretchen imagined chattering forest creatures threading and snipping, this dress complete just in time for the ball. Fashion commentators would knock each other senseless to ask the designer's name. Ma'am, I don't... Oh, sugar, I'm not your mama. I'm Barbie. What the hell happened to me? Barbie gently took Gretchen's hands and looked into her eyes with such deep empathy that she instantly believed this sales lady would reveal all her customer needed to know. This is the new you. How the hell did this happen? Honey, I'm as clueless as you. When I first stepped outside that room, I was shocked, too. I literally didn't recognize myself. Barbie grinned. It took me a few seconds to realize that I'd gotten what I wanted all along. But, but where's my sister? Where's Maureen? I don't believe I know anyone by that name. Gretchen's forehead had grown slick with sweat. She tried to breathe deeply and deliberately, like she'd learned in group, but all she could manage were short, sharp gasps. Barbie wrapped an arm around her. Her busy charm bracelet tinkled at Gretchen's side. Gretchen looked up long enough to witness three other young women, all facsimiles of Barbie, and her, gathering around them. All of them, they smiled with a sincerity Gretchen couldn't quite believe. They're being nice because I'm crippled, she thought. They feel sorry for me because I'm heavy. Barbie eased Gretchen down the platform facing the mirrors and coaxed her toward the cash register. The newly gorgeous young woman noticed with alarm that at least a dozen beautiful women seemed to be shopping as if nothing had happened. The dresses were all spectacular. Lavender and cinnamon filled the air. Barbie assisted Gretchen to a folding chair. I'm going to show you something if you promise not to laugh. She grabbed a small, glittery handbag from beneath the register and delicately poked through it.
The time Gretchen waited for this next revelation stretched like spandex. She suspected Barbie was stalling while something horrible, a bucket of pig's blood, trapped Gretchen in its crosshairs. Finally, Barbie handed her a wallet-sized photo of a short, heavy woman grimacing on the beach in an ill-fitting, striped, one-piece swimsuit. Honey, that was me. I used to be her. No way, you look nothing like... The trio of sales ladies, lurking and listening, belched a flurry of giggles. Honey, Barbie said, that's kind of the whole point. Gretchen's shoulders tensed at realizing what she was being offered. She instinctively knew she couldn't return to her old life while inhabiting this new body. She wasn't just switching images, she was switching lives. Like most downtrodden souls presented with a surprise windfall, Gretchen's impulse was to distrust the offer's legitimacy. There had to be a catch. If not, there would be almost no women left in her old world. They'd be frolicking and shopping and gossiping in this one. The catch, it finally occurred to her, was that she would have to leave her family and friends forever. She knew she'd miss even her sister, miss her like a tumor excised from her brain. It's all too easy to let your hindrances define you. Also, she doubted there was group therapy in this realm of the impossibly gorgeous. May I look at the dress in the mirror one last time? Of course, honey, look as long as you want. Gretchen hadn't needed more time to look. She simply wanted to look at her new self when she announced her decision to Barbie and the sales ladies. They had gathered around her, eager and hopeful. All of them wore charm bracelets, and all seemed to jingle despite the women's stillness. I'm sorry, ma'am, Gretchen said. This just isn't me. Barbie's jaw dropped and her eyes narrowed. The trio of salesladies reacted in unison. Honey, are you sure? You're so beautiful. I know, I know I am. It was wonderful, but it just isn't me. Gretchen returned to the stall that served as portal to this wonderland, but before she closed the door, Barbie grabbed her wrist with a ferocity that shocked her. Barbie's eyes grew moist, but she lost none of her radiance. If you ever change your mind, you know how to find us. Thank you for an awesome afternoon. Barbie kneeled before Gretchen and brought the customer's hand to her cheek. Just let them know you exist, she said softly. That's all you have to do. Maureen knocked on the stall door as if she enforced the law. Gretchen, short and heavy and freckled, opened the door, the black velour dress slung over her arm. "'What on earth took you so long?' she demanded. "'I could have told you right off that rag wasn't good enough.' Gretchen scurried past her, still needing the cane, but moving with a newfound lightness, and smiled at the meek saleslady. She responded with a grin, so relieved, Gretchen wondered how often anyone was nice to her, how often anyone noticed her. "'This is just what I wanted,' she said. "'It looked better on me than I ever imagined.' Hold on one damn minute, Maureen snapped. We had a deal. Calmly and deliberately, as if speaking to an unruly child, as if speaking to her Brady, Gretchen said, If you like the other one so much, wear it yourself. While Maureen huffed about the store, as if determined to show every possible person her distress, the meek saleslady smiled at Gretchen after ringing up the purchase. Come back soon, she said. The sisters emerged onto the sidewalk. It was a hot, humid day, but the exhaustion Gretchen felt a half hour ago had lifted. 
she gazed up at the office buildings and skyscrapers in the distance. There's a whole world to see, she thought, but I was looking in the wrong direction. Maureen continued muttering about how selfish and petty Gretchen was. At least she assumed that's what Maureen was saying. Let's have lunch at that cute cafe down the block, Gretchen said. I'm not hungry. We have to go home. That's too bad. I'll get a cab. She kept walking deeper into the city. Maureen left graceless and dumbstruck. Gretchen tried to remember the tall, thin, divine woman she momentarily became, the woman she left behind. Curiously, she couldn't recall that woman's appearance. The memory was quicksilver, snatches of a dream recalled moments after waking. Gretchen was certain, however, that when she sat at the captain's table next month, the other guests would know that she indeed exists. The End Thomas Kearns is a 37-year-old author living in Houston. His fiction has appeared in Pank, Story Glossia, Sundog Lit, Word Riot, Digital Americana Magazine, Smoke Long Quarterly, and numerous other venues. His two short story collections, Pretend I'm Not Here, Musa Publishing, and Promiscuous, JMS Books, are available for purchase. He is studying to become a licensed chemical dependency counselor. He throws like a girl. Listener-supported Bound Off is made possible by grants from the Kern Family Endowed Fund. Further support comes from the Google Grants Program. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.